welcome to Destiny is Debatable, a podcast and movement that will encourage you to build your life into the one you want. Here's your host, a guy who's great at hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, hey, and howdy, howdy. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting the podcast experience. Our guest for this episode is John Bryant, which is just a great name. And uh, we'll get into that in a little bit with some more detail on that. But John is uh, a drummer and has been for quite some time and has done uh, some pretty amazing things in his uh, drumming days in his career. Most notably for me was the time he spent with Ray Charles. And I've heard some fascinating stories about about John and Ray and uh, how they communicated. And uh, I don't know, it's just a fascinating story. And I wanted to talk to John about it and get some more information. Hey, John Bryant, thanks for stopping by. My pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. This is uh, pretty interesting, John. I've, I've mentioned to you before a couple of times now, and I don't want to make you uncomfortable with this, but we have a very similar name. Of course, I'm John B. Grimes, and the B stands for Bryant. So I just thought it was really weird that, um, you know, talking to yeah. John Bryant. Well, um, it's a good name. Yeah. <laughs> got two John Bryants talking to each other here, but usually when I heard John Bryant, um, that meant something probably went wrong for me. That was usually right. my mom or dad. With, uh, right. You know. Right. And sometimes for me too. <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of crazy how our uh, paths have crossed here recently. I'm super interested to talk to you because you, uh, you're a drummer. And I got all these puns I have just stacked up for this. You know, you, you march the beat of your own drum, right? Yep. Um, kind of been doing that since I was about 12 years old. Started with the Beatles. And, you know, we're uh, coming up on the 60th anniversary of the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. And uh, I was right in front of the TV seeing that and hearing that. And uh, pretty much from that week on, I've been on a path, you know, that uh, that I was so excited by that whole thing that happened with the Beatles. And it's really hard to believe it's been 60 years, but, you know, it has. And it caught me right at the right uh, age when I was trying to figure out who I was and what do I want to do and where am I going? And, and, you know, that really helped me with all those decisions. It all comes back to the Beatles. Yeah. Okay. Well, before we get too far into that, John, I've got some wacky questions that I'm uh, contractually obligated by my listeners to uh, ask you to get to know you. So, Okay, let's go. This one should be interesting. What's your favorite band or type of music? Well, I, I probably already said that. My favorite band's the Beatles. They are the most influential on me. Who's second? Or who's, who's in the next echelon? Well, you know, um, if uh, whether it's a, a band or an artist... I go back and forth with uh, what style of music I favor the most, and both as a drummer and a listener. As a drummer, I think I've uh, mostly been challenged mostly by jazz. So, you know, with jazz, um, um, it is it's a technical issue. It brings in a lot more questions about your abilities. Um, with rock, a lot of it is the emotion. A lot of it is just let me hit these drums and be a part of the screaming and the excitement and the volume. So they're two different things. Um, and so when you process who's your favorite, 
it becomes difficult because I have a favorite in a, in a sort of a jazz idiom that is covered with technical uh, sort of uh, attributes. And then I have favorites that are more popular music, uh, like the Beatles, that just drive me, you know, and not from a technical standpoint, but from an emotional standpoint and from a, uh, a standpoint that is entirely different than, than one that uh, music schools embrace, so to speak. What is your favorite book or type of book to read? I really like um, nonfiction. There's a few fiction books that I that I really like a lot, but I uh, I read biographies. Try not to read only music figures, you know. Um, although I have a I have a good friend um, in Los Angeles named David Ritz, and he's a he's a great writer. He's got over 50 books to his uh, resume, and and he's the ghost writer to Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, Marvin Gaye, BB King. Go down the list of all the great icons, and so I get. I'm fortunate to be on his list and I get every book he, he writes. He just wrote a great one on Willie Nelson, uh, where Willie uh, has uh, on one page, there the lyrics to his songs, you know, like about a hundred songs. And on the other page is the description of how those songs came about and what they might mean. That sounds uh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's my most recent book that I've read. Right now, I'm reading uh, a book called The 1619 Project, uh, which is involved with uh, uh, slaves being brought to America and what happened with that whole thing. And that's quite interesting. Um, I like reading about historical figures, uh, like just read a book on Benjamin Franklin, um, but also just read a book on Lenny Kravitz. So, you know. Quite a contrast um, so, there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, so I go back and forth on things like that. And every now and then, a, a fiction, a novel will uh, jump in there and I'll and I'll read that too. So, Do you have a favorite quote that you uh, live by or have posted somewhere? Hmm. Oh, boy. That's a good one. Um, I'm, I'm sure uh, there is um, that I can't really put my finger on right now or... Or, or bring to mind because I've, I have really admired certain um, certain live by kind of quotes that I think, yeah, that's a that's a good one. And they come from all kinds of directions, you know. Um, let me let me re reframe it then in, in terms of instead of a quote to live by, like a lyric in music, maybe not exactly a lyric, but who's a good. Is there is there a particular band or writer that commonly gives you some profound lyrics that you absorb? Well, you know, it's funny you bring that up because I do a bit of writing. I like to write. Um, I like to write stories about experiences I've had, uh, you know, with some famous people, with some great musicians and the impact it had on me. Um, lyrics, I asked my class at SMU, uh, you know, I teach at Southern Methodist University. I teach a music production class and a music business class. And um, I'm always asking my classroom full of songwriters and, and uh, producers and music business people and people that just love music. I ask them, raise your hand if you hear the lyrics first or the music first. What do you focus on first? And it, you know, it's it just goes back and forth. One class, the hands will shoot up for the lyrics. Another class, the hands will shoot up for the, the music. And I'm a music guy. I don't attach myself to the lyrics 
nearly as much as I attract, uh, you know, attach myself to the music and the sound of the music. Um, that's just who I am. So when I come to a lyric, and again, the latest batch I've been reading are uh, Willie Nelson's, and they're just fantastic. And and one one lyric that uh, uh, he has uh, in one of his songs that I was reading was, uh, you know, love has a mind of its own. You know, that's just a great line. Love has a mind of its own, you know. Um, and and the thing, you know, things like that will stand out to me, one line like that. Um, but, uh, but also, you know, John Lennon, I think, uh, imagine there's no heaven. Wow, now that is a provocative thought. And you have to keep listening to see where is this going to go. And it keeps unfolding. And it's just, it's brilliant, you know. Okay, so while we're on writing and books, if somebody wrote a biography about you, what do you think the title would be? Well, I've thought about that. I'm playing around with a title in case I write it. Um, a Beat Followed. Says the drummer, exactly. Okay, so now you're going out to dinner with three drummers from any point in history. You and uh, three others. Who are you eating with? Well, I'm definitely eating with Buddy Rich and Ringo Starr. The third one is a toss-up, and I can throw out a few names who would be, uh, you know, nominated for that third one. Could be John Bonham, could be Steve Gadd, could be Stuart Copeland, you know. Um, but those are those are the ones that are uppermost in my mind as an influence. Um, Tony Williams, another great jazz drummer, but uh, but those names are the ones that probably have had more influence on me than any others. Who's Buddy Rich? I don't recognize that name. Ah, uh, Buddy Rich uh, is arguably the greatest drummer of all time. He was uh, a jazz drummer in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, died in the 80s, um, but just an incredible natural musician and technician and combine those two things in a way that I don't think anyone else has, you know, on the drums. Okay, sounds like a good time. That's all yeah. the wacky questions I got, John. All right, that's good. Keep them coming. I like them. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you've already kind of said it originally. Um, as a young person, you are influenced by kind of, I guess, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, like so many millions yeah. of Americans were at that time. But what was it about drums? What was it about Ringo or... Or maybe maybe it was not exactly Ringo, but what what was about drumming? Did you did you, had you drummed before? I had not, and uh, I had been a musician before. Um, I had this career, believe it or not, when I was like uh, four, five, six years old as an Elvis impersonator. Oh because, wow! Are there yeah. any pictures of that that exist? Yeah, there are. There are. Um, <laughs> I. I had a 16-year-old cousin that lived with us, and she was an Elvis nut right about the time that Elvis was uh, uh, exploding. Mm -hmm. And she had all the records, and she taught me the songs. She taught me the lyrics, taught me how to stand with a guitar and, and, and mime the lyrics. So I was, you know, um, I was miming. I wasn't performing. It was all uh, an act. 
but I did do a few gigs around town and a couple of TV shows and some stuff like that. And then when I got into school, when I was six, my mom said, there's, that's enough of that. We don't need any more of that silliness. So, so then I took piano lessons uh, a couple of years later from the local church organist. And I really hated it, you know, just did not connect to it at all. So I played baseball and football with the kids for a couple of years and then the Beatles exploded. And I think the thing about Ringo was that I had never seen a drummer up on a pedestal towering over the other musicians and more importantly, having as much fun as he was visibly having. He was having a ball. And that's what hit me, that this is fun. It's not a bunch of scales. You don't have to learn to, you know, do all of these regimented exercises like I had learned playing piano that really turned me off. Um, you could just get up on the drums and hit them and go. And that appealed to me. And so that's why I took off in that direction. So Ringo was elevated in that? Yes, yes. He was on a pedestal behind the other three Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, up very high, probably four or five feet in the air. Is that normal? At the time? No, no, that's why it stuck out. You know, when when Elvis and and uh, Buddy Holly and uh, so many other uh, acts were on the Ed Sullivan show, the drummer was on the floor, way in the back. You didn't see him. He wasn't lit up. Uh, so this was a whole other thing. And as I tell my class, this is really a major illustration of the concept of a band. Before that, there were generally front men or women singing in front of a band, maybe a big band, maybe a small group, an orchestra, but there was a soloist in the front that was clearly the point of attention. But with the Beatles, they came out and said, no, we're a band. We're, we don't have a star in this band. We write the music. We produce the music with George Martin. We perform it. And we are a band. We dress alike. We act alike. We do alike. We wear our hair alike. We're a unit together. We're democratic. We love the music. And that's what leads us. All those things were apparent visibly on the Ed Sullivan show, if you looked. Yeah. Interesting. I have to go back and see some of that. So how long did it take for you to get your first drum at that point? Or, or And actually, I'll, I'll also say we have a, a an image associated with this episode, which is a picture of you, which is on your website, which is johnbryantdrums.com. Is that right? Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah. So that picture is you holding a, uh, what I'm just going to call a snare drum, yeah. for lack of a better description. Uh -huh. um, and it says something, the caption of the picture says you, you and this uh, drum have been buddies for how many years? Over 50 years. Okay. Was that your first drum? No, that was my second one. Okay. Um, Soon after uh, the Beatles were on, I mean, what happened, you know, the next week you go to school and the girls are over in one corner talking about their favorite Beatle and giggling about, oh, he's the cutest. Oh, no, Paul is, no, George is. And 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 the guys were noticing this and saying, you know, um, maybe maybe we need to get a band together. Yes. So there was a, it was a small town, but there was a local music store and fortunately a great teacher. So uh, uh, a couple of my buddies and myself went down to this music store. They started taking guitar lessons. I started taking drum lessons. And coincidentally, there was one guy that played guitar and drums. And he was a great drum teacher named Mickey Walker. And I walked in, you know, holding the sticks like Ringo held them, which is like kind of two hammers. 
and said, hey, I want to play drums. And he said, okay, let's get started. Maybe you can try holding the sticks this way. And then he showed me the traditional way you hold the sticks, which in the left hand is between the first, uh, the second and the third finger in the crotch of the thumb. Um, it's more of a military drum tradition. Um, and so I started that way and I started on a practice pad, a rubber pad, and he gave me exercises to do and we listened to music, but I was on that practice pad for over a year before I got a drum. So I didn't touch a drum until I'd been playing on a rubber practice pad, working on exercises, getting my technique together. He had to be a fabulous teacher to get me to do that, you know. And from time to time, I'd sneak sneak over to a, a music store or some friend's house that had drums and hit them. But I eventually got my first drum set after a, about a year. And uh, and it looked like Ringo's. It was a black, uh, um, what they call Marine Pearl Ludwig drum set. And I had that for about maybe a year or two and then traded that in for a slightly higher model of another Ludwig drum set. And that's when that second snare drum that's in that story came into my life. And I still have it and play it regularly. Okay. So your first drum set, you said, uh, yeah. does that come yeah. home with you or is that somewhere yes. else? Okay. So yeah. That's, come, come, yeah. That's, so now it's kind of loud at home. How does that work? Yeah. Well, um, I grew up in Virginia and unlike Texas, all homes there have basements and basements are perfect for a drum set yes. or a gu guitar or whatever. So uh, my mom used to say it was fine with her, the racket coming from downstairs because she always knew where I was. Mm -hmm. Sure. And, okay. And I was down there a lot. Okay. So two drum sets and this is in your like early teens. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Yeah. Not at the same time, the first one. And then I traded that in and got yeah. the second one a couple of years later. Okay. So at what point do you decide or do you have this thought in your mind that I, this is what, this is it. This is what I want to do. I want to, I want to drum or I want to be a percussionist. Can I call you a drummer or a percussionist or what's the. It's, it's fine. Um, generally speaking, uh, percussionists play a lot of different kinds of percussion instruments, you know, like conga drums and timpani and snare drums and bass drums and mallets and chimes and all of that stuff. That's what a percussionist plays. Um, a drummer is quite often just referred to that way as a drum set player. Um, but I'm a drummer and a percussionist. I study percussion at North Texas. Okay. So you're... 16, 17, 18, and you're like, this is it. I'm going to be a drummer. Yeah, I pretty much knew it by the time I got my first band together and started playing for parties and, and getting that feeling. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to say that I just wasn't looking in any other direction by the time I was 15. What was the name of your first band? The Classics. How long did that group stay together? Well, pretty much, uh, well, it's kind of funny. We were together for a couple of years in high school, but I was also playing in the uh, the high school stage band, which was the jazz band. And that's where I started really kind of having a little bit of a musical conflict because I was learning this jazz stuff and listening to Buddy Rich and playing big band stuff, which was very foreign to the, the rock and roll Beatle kind of stuff. So... Um, I think my buddies understood that I was getting a little bit more involved in the other and they reformed with another drummer and played a couple of years. But by the time I got around to my senior year, uh, I realized, uh, you know, 
music is music and it can all live together. And we got back together as a band uh, in the end. And we're still great friends. And we played for my uh, 50th high school reunion uh, last year, a couple of years ago. As the classics? The classics, yeah. Nice. And that's got a a great meaning now, uh, 50 years later. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. All right. So does does a jazz drummer look down on a rock and roll drummer? Some of them do. Is yeah. that is that warranted? I mean, is that, that is that crazy or I mean, obviously it's a different, totally different. I mean, it's the same instrument basically, yeah. but a totally different way of playing the instrument. And are there other I'm trying to think of other instruments? I mean, like a saxophone, for instance, appears in jazz and in rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's more just how it's played than the actual instrument itself. Yeah, I think um, you know, with drums. When a drummer decides they want to play jazz, they pretty much have to learn how to read music and they have to listen to jazz drummers and they have to develop a particular technique, which requires a lot of work and a lot of practice. So uh, if they see a rock drummer who hasn't gone those routes, um, not to say that they haven't practiced, but they probably spent more of their time playing in a band than they have in a basement working on technical issues. So, yeah, in some cases, jazz drummers will look down on rock drummers because they don't think they put the same amount of work into it. Um, But again, music is music. And when it all comes around, smart jazz drummers realize that in order to be able to play rock correctly, they might not be able to because of their whole procedure of of how they think about things, overthinking things. Um, you know, putting certain parameters on their decisions about how to perform, how to play, whereas uh, it's different with uh, with rock music, you know. Do you prefer one over the other? Well, you know, it's back to that thing. I go back and forth. Um, I, I think as you age, you decide there are certain tasks I need to perform for the betterment of my career and to meet certain people and to get certain places. And so you sort of favor and listen to one kind of music more than the other. And then I think uh, you kind of boomerang back to other things, you know. But I, but look, if you're going to be a professional musician, your best bet is to listen to everything, try and appreciate it all, and do the best you can with, with uh, you know, conquering it, so to speak. What's the role of a drummer in a group or a band? Like, does, does the drummer hold everything together? Or yeah. is it a collective or what is your, what's your take on that? It is a collective, but, uh, you know, it's often been said that uh, a band is only as good as its drummer. And Duke Ellington said this, you can have a great drummer with a mediocre band, but you cannot have a great band with a mediocre drummer. It, the drummer is the hub of the wheel. The drummer is the one that You know, a lot of people think the drummer's first responsibility is to keep time, good, consistent tempo. And of course, you have to be able to do that. But the real first responsibility of a drummer is to make all the other musicians around you feel comfortable by the way that you define all the aspects of that music, the tempo, the uh, style, the dynamics the uh, uh, um, development of the piece of music. Uh, the drummer's the barometer in the middle of all of that. And he, if he or she are, is off the mark, 
it's going to show in the performance of the entire band. And you, in our questions earlier, you mentioned a few drummers that you were going to go to dinner with. Uh, I presume those are among the best drummers that were able to do that. Well, yeah, and they all have different aspects to them. You know, they all have different flavors, and 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 they're all innovators. That's the thing. You know, there's just a zillion great drummers in this world. Most of them you haven't even heard of. Um, and the ones that surface are the ones that typically are with a great band and typically do it in a way that is entirely different of how other people have done it, you know, in some way or the other. So Buddy Rich certainly exemplifies that. Ringo exemplifies that. Stuart Copeland exemplifies that. Uh, you know, uh, Stuart took, uh, when he was uh, came out with the police, he took a number of influences from Middle Eastern music, from reggae, from jazz, from all sorts of, uh, you know, styles and rolled them up into something that had never been heard before. So when every time I think of drummers and um, unique drummers that, you know, drummers that I know, now I don't know this guy's name, but I know you know who I'm talking about, the, uh, the drummer from Poison in the 80s, right? Or no, I'm sorry, the drummer from Def Leppard. I'm getting my hair. Yes, Rick, up. Rick, uh, Rick, uh, I think his name's Rick Allen. Um, okay. Uh, the one that lost an arm. Yes. Yes. So how does that work? Well, he has a foot pedal and he can play that. Uh, he can do some things with one hand. He can play the hi-hat and the snare drum, um, or he can go to his foot pedal. Uh, his electronic pedal is what it is. And he can play sounds with his left foot. He can play bass drum with his right foot and bring his left foot off the hi-hat and play snare drum sounds if he wants to, uh, you know. So he figured out how to do all of that. Yeah. But, uh, but you know. So what are your feet doing? Uh, so obviously we see what your arms are doing. If you can see a drummer, you can't see the feet usually. What are feet doing down there? Well, the, the right foot, if you're a right-handed drummer, is the bass drum. And that's the one and three, you know. And the snare drum with the left hand is the backbeat. That's the two and four. So it's the, the basis of all American popular music. Boom, bop, boom, bop, boom, bop. Then the cymbals, you're playing with your right hand on either the closed hi-hat that your left foot is closing and opening some, or you're on a ride cymbal. And, and your left hand is playing that backbeat and, uh, and the left foot is operating the hi-hat. The left foot can also play a second bass drum pedal, uh, uh, but mostly it's, it's the hi-hat that, that um, the left foot manipulates to, to open a sound, like the famous disco thing, that boom, 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 You know, your left foot is opening and closing uh, the, 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 the hi-hat double cymbals there. So... Um, that's generally how it works. But um, yeah, it's uh, uh, like like a, a three-legged dog can walk. A a three-limbed person can play the drums. But the drummer, no doubt, is the one getting all the exercise up there. They're the one with the most, yeah. probably the most sweat by the, the time of the set's over, right? Yep. And also because they got to carry all of that heavy stuff. You know, they're, they're carrying the drums in. They're playing nonstop, you know, when... When the singer's taking a break or not singing or the guitar player's not playing in between solos or this or that, the drummer is always chugging through every moment of the music, never gets the break. And then at the end of the night is the last one to leave because they got to pack up the stuff, carry it out through the, through the greasy kitchen uh, to the loading dock 
and load it in the drums in you know in 20 degree weather and get gone so yeah it toughens you up <laughs> how many times do you think you've um put together and uh dismantled your uh, drum set in your days oh god thousands thousands <laughs> thousands are they all kind of the same and it's a, is it the same same principle yeah they're pretty much the same yeah uh I, I was thinking as you were talking about that there's a video i saw a few years ago with um the uh uh dave grohl uh from mm -hmm. nirvana back in the uh early 90s playing i don't know if it was Nevermind. Mm -hmm. or a song where the, the camera was just focused on him the whole time. And my goodness, the, uh, I mean, hair flying everywhere, limbs. It, 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 I was tired watching him play after yeah. three minutes. Uh, three he's minutes a is a hitter. long time. Yeah, he, he, man. he's a hard hitter. Um, some drummers are. Jazz drummers typically don't play as hard as rock drummers do. Um, but there is a trick to it. You know, it's not like... Um, I'm hitting this drum hard. It's more a thing of I'm moving my limbs in a way that's going to allow this wooden stick to strike it hard. And great drummers know that you let the stick do the work and you're simply moving it. Uh, you're letting it get into position and you're stopping it and starting it. But the stick's doing the work if you're doing it right. And over the years, you've played with some pretty interesting people. And uh, we can probably get into some of those also, but the the probably the main reason that I, uh, other than your name, was drawn to you, uh, John Bryant, was uh, your your time you spent with Ray Charles, and I just find it fascinating as a guy myself who is visually impaired. Now, Ray Charles, to to my not understanding, was is he completely blind? Is that Yes, he was. Uh, he had sight until he was about five or six years old. Um, lived a normal uh, kind of a life of a of a poor black child in the South, if you want to call that normal. Um, but he, you know, he uh, he had a, a a basic, good, carefree life, running around, and uh, uh, you know, had uh, seen a piano player play, and and uh, but then. And they're not sure what happened, but they think it was some form of glaucoma. Um, and his eyes started uh, getting a waxy substance. And the doctors told his mother, yeah, he's, he's going to go blind, so prepare for that. Um, and his, his mother was a very strict disciplinarian. She told him, you know, and Ray always said, you know, she told him, you can do anything you set your mind to. Whatever you want to do, this blindness is not going to hamper you. But you have to do the work. And so she sent him to the St. Augustine School for the uh, the Blind and Deaf in Florida uh, when he was about, I think, eight years old. And uh, he hated it. He did not want to leave his mom. He, you know, just did not want to leave what he knew and be alone in the darkness in a whole new place. But he eventually, uh, you know, uh, acclimated to it. And there he learned how to read and write Braille. And he learned how to play uh, classical music on the piano while he was listening to all the other uh, popular music of the time. And he developed his musical sense and his, uh, uh, you know, uh, allowed his incredible genius to come forth without sight. Um, and 
it um i'll tell you an interesting story was uh when i was touring with ray and this was back in the 70s we went and played a performance at that school for the blind and we were backstage before the show and it was quite a sight to see uh ray charles uh holding the hand of of a small black child blind black child who was the holding a hand of another of another of another and it was a long line of kids and ray was leading them uh, down the back of the hall and he had been with them talking to them and was now they were all hand in hand walking past and uh, of course his valet was uh, was leading him and uh, it was just really a touching thing to see you know to think about what must have been going through his mind um knowing where these kids were at because he had been there yeah um, and uh so there are just so many aspects of of his blindness and how it affected him as a as a person as a performer as a musician as a as an icon as a businessman and uh, he really had no limits on what he thought he could accomplish you know so uh um and and i'll tell you uh i mentioned my friend david ritz uh his first book uh, as a, as a major author was Ray Charles's story. And he had a very hard time getting through Ray's manager to get to Ray, to ask him if he could write his book. And, um, he called, he called the manager, got no response, did all this. Finally, he figured out, I'm going to have, I'm going to write a letter in Braille and send it to Ray. And that's what he did. And Ray responded to that. Interesting. And then they, they wrote the book together. Wow. That's a cool story. Huh. How did you get hooked up with Ray? Well, um, I went to school, you know, at North Texas at the time, North Texas State University. Now it's University of North Texas, but it has a, you know, one of the greatest jazz programs in the world. And that appealed to me. And I met musicians there um, that were also introducing me to uh, black jazz musicians in South Dallas. And Ray lived in Dallas. Uh, Ray's first two children were born in Dallas, um, lived in, in South Dallas uh, off of uh, Martin Luther King Boulevard. And there's an area down there where they would have uh, jam sessions with the, with the black jazz musicians at that time. And they were uh, like Fathead Newman and James Clay and Leroy Cooper, uh, names like that, that knew Ray. And had played in Ray's band and been important in Ray's life. And so Ray needed a drummer at some point. He didn't like the guy that was playing for him. And he went to these people who I had gone down and also met and played with. And they knew me and heard me. And so it's about, you know, friendships being made through music and playing. And so when that opportunity came up, um, I came home one day and and my roommate uh, handed me a note and said, you, uh, you got a call from Ray Charles. And, you know, it didn't shock me to the core because I knew people playing with Ray at the time. I had played with him. I had gone to school with him, all of that kind of thing. So, so I, I called the number and they put me through and this voice came on the phone and it was Ray. And um, he did the hiring and the firing directly himself he didn't have a middleman do that and so we said john i heard about you through james clay and i need a drummer can you be in denver tomorrow and i said yes <laughs> okay. and that's how flexibility it yeah 
you mentioned earlier that the drummer is the key, the thing that the spoke of the wheel or the hub of the wheel, you said. Yeah. How does that work with somebody? I, I, I guess Ray probably had a pretty big personality. It sounds like he was, uh, I don't know if, if he, if control was a thing for him, but obviously doing the hiring and firing, he had a pretty good pulse of the, uh, of the band and, and the music and the stuff that he wanted to do. So how does, how does the person that wants to can control those things manage a drummer that controls the, the tempo of the band? Well, Ray Charles was, uh, was huge in every way that you can imagine. And yes, he was totally in control of everything. Nothing happened without his knowledge. And, and uh, everybody knew that instantly when you come into his room when you come into his world uh the first thing he says to you is the first commandment is i don't change when i tell you i want something a certain way that's the way it will always be if i tell you i'm looking for this and i'm looking out for that you can count on it i don't change that's his first commandment so what that means is he gives you instructions you're supposed to follow it and don't go off uh, the path. Now, this was certainly for all the music, but also all the business end of his life and his uh, personal life and all the all the aspects of his life, which were very broad and deep. Um, he was a very complex individual. He would he could really get angry fast, and it was frightening because you couldn't really see it coming sometimes. Um, and he would explode on stage, in a rehearsal, uh, in, you know, in the studio. You were always a little bit on pins and needles with Ray because he could not just give you a look. That's what was key. He couldn't look at you and send a signal to you with a look. That didn't exist. So, Which most of us take for granted. Because yes, you have absolutely. The ability to do that, you know? Absolutely. So um, as the drummer, he knew that he could control the band through the drummer. And the way he did that was he would beat the time out with his feet. You know, he would play the tempo with his feet as he's playing piano with his hands. And he expected the drummer to be with those feet. And if the drummer was with the feet, the band would be with the drummer. And, you know, he let me know that clearly one night because we were playing somewhere and um, um, I could feel the band kind of dragging behind where Ray was. Ray was at a different tempo and he was a little bit, he was in front and they were in back and I was in the middle and I thought I'm going to try and split the difference. And that was the wrong thing to do. And he blew up on stage and looked in my direction and screamed. And I often say, man, you know, Ray could, uh, Ray could burn a hole through you with his look, you know, mm -hmm. because those eyebrows would shoot up over those dark glasses and, and the face would turn into something else. And, uh, man, it was frightening. So, you know, uh, after that show, his, uh, his valet said, Ray wants to see you in a dressing room right now. And I went back there and he said, John, he said, I don't give a damn. He used even more colorful language about what those other 17 so-and-sos are doing. I only care about what you and I are doing, because if you stay with me, they will stay with us. 
So don't ever make that uh, uh, decision again to go with them instead of me. Boom. That's it. Yeah. So was there, was there a, an understanding prior to this about you watching his feats or did he tell you that or? Oh yeah. Yeah. He made it clear. Stay with me, watch my feet, stay with my feet. And so it had to be a clear view when you set up the stage manager, set up the band, set up the drummer to have a clear view of Ray's feet. Yeah. Okay. So, and are you on this, like normally the same level? Are you on a, are you elevated? So usually a little bit of a riser. Give you a little vantage point, better vantage point, maybe? Well, it, you never know. You come to some stage, they got risers. Some stages don't. If it's a TV show, it's going to be one thing. If it's a, you know, a concert in an auditorium, it might be something else. So, uh, but whatever the case, you, you're going to, you got to see his foot. So how long did it take for you to get in sync with that? Is that oh, pretty much God. immediate? No, no, it's not an easy thing for a drummer to follow someone else. It's a battle. Yeah, because you march around. to the beat of your own drum, quite literally, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's it's ultimately why I left Ray. You know, I was with him a couple of years and ultimately I got tired of following those feet. Yeah. Huh. It's just super interesting. Uh so it, it was it was difficult. Very. It was stressful. Do you know other people that drum for him? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We have a brotherhood. We talk about it and we have years. I'll kind of say the same thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ray doesn't change. Yeah, that, yeah, you're right. That's what he said. That's right. So uh, a couple of years with Ray uh, on the road, in the studio, all those things. That, you said you were on the album Renaissance with Ray? Yeah, and that was my first time with Ray um, in the mid-70s. I did a couple of tours with him, and we went to Europe and Canada and all over the United States. And I did a couple of records with him and uh, some TV shows. And, um, and then I left him. Um, and, uh, but I stayed in touch with all the guys in the band and, um, and whenever he would come to Dallas, I would always go see him because I wanted to stay in touch with him. I knew, Hey, maybe I'll go back sometime, you know? So I stayed in good with Ray. We always had a good relationship. He'd always had me back to his dressing room to talk after the show, you know, if, if he was in town. And then later on in the nineties, um, his regular drummer who we were pals, he had to take off sometimes and, and either go to his daughter's wedding or he was sick or go to a, something going on and he couldn't play and he would have me sub. And Ray was fine with that. Ray knew me, trusted me. So I would go out and, and sub. And this was in the 90s. And then um, Ray started doing symphony dates where he would take a rhythm section to an orchestra like the Dallas Symphony or whoever and play uh, uh, what, you know, would be like a pops concert, his his music with orchestra. So I did some of those. And then he he hired me to be his orchestra contractor, where when he would come to North Texas, I would hire the orchestra musicians to play those shows with him. And so I had a relationship with him that way. Okay, so you toured with Ray for a while and, and lots of other musicians and bands and things that you were in too. What are some of, or maybe the coolest places you played or venues or cities or what, what, was, what was the tops of those lists? 
Well, I'm going to say uh, in the United States, uh, playing uh, uh, Central Park, a big outdoor concert. And that was with Ray. And a funny thing happened. We were on the stage. There was thousands of people out in Central Park in a beautiful day. And we were in the middle of a song. And Ray's valet came up behind him and whispered in his ear, which is a no-no. You just don't do that. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, something is up. And Ray just quit playing in the middle of the song and jumped up and went off stage, left the stage. And the, the band, you know, the, the music just going da, 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 like that. And then uh, the road manager came on the stage and he said to us, everybody, um, get up and leave right now. Go to the bus behind the stage right now. And so we all just uh, told me, leave your drums there. We don't have time. Get up, leave, go to the bus right now. Didn't know what was going on. We got on the bus, went back to the hotel, turned on the TV and saw the news report that there had been a bomb threat at a concert in Central Park, a Ray Charles concert. Wow. So that was pretty traumatic, (laughs) but nothing happened. There was no bomb. Um, And then, you know, uh, playing the Troubadour uh, in Los Angeles, a great venue where everybody has played. And uh, I've played there a couple of times. I played there with my own band um, in the 80s. And then I played there about 10 years ago with Joe Walsh. uh, And that was exciting and fun. And then, you know, playing um, in Europe, some of the great old uh, uh, performance halls, uh, the La Salle Playel in Paris. Beautiful theater, beautiful auditorium, and uh, just uh, um, just you know, just beautiful vistas like outdoor concerts in La Havre, France, overlooking the ocean, you know, and uh, things like that. Um, you know, playing some of the great concert halls, like in Dallas, the Meyerson is a fabulous concert hall, just great. And then I played with, uh, performed with the Cleveland Orchestra with my group, D-Drum, and their orchestra hall is a beautiful uh, uh, severance hall. That's a beautiful place. Uh, so, you know, it, um, it uplifts you and humbles you at the same time when you do that, when you get in a space like that and you think about who has been on that stage where you are, you know. And then playing, uh, I played the Johnny Carson show uh, on the Burbank NBC stages. Um, and it was a kind of a, a childhood dream of mine. Uh, I grew up watching the, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and Doc Severinsen's band. And Ed Shaughnessy was the drummer in that great big band. And, and I had met Ed Shaughnessy and I got to play his drums with that great big band on the Johnny Carson show with, with Ray. So that was an exciting moment. So once a drummer, always a drummer, I think that's probably how it works. I have kind of an example of that. My dad, who I've, I'm tracking is to be about very similar age to you. Um, and, and kind of like your start was the same. He uh, was drumming as a kid and then the high school and bands, but he uh, he didn't follow through. He, he stopped the music part of it, but it, I think it still always lived in him. And like 30 years later, as I'm 40 years later or whatever it was, I'm getting married. And at my at my wedding, he jumped up on stage and played played drums for a, yeah. a song or two, which is yeah. you know he probably hadn't touched a, a drum set for sure in I don't know thirty years at least, but uh, he did it and he stayed right with him. It was well, just it's a, great. amazing and great pictures. 
Uh, I mean, I think you develop that muscle memory for playing the drums and it will never leave you. I mean, you get a little rusty, but it's not like playing the trumpet or even the sax or the trombone, those wind instruments, man, you got to play them all the time to be able to play them, you know, or you'll lose your lip, you'll lose your technique. But, you know, drums, I think probably piano, um, it comes back to you pretty quickly. And in a lifetime of drumming like you, what is it about drumming that makes you feel alive? What is it that keeps, what is it about drumming that makes you uh, keep wanting to go? Oh, it's, it's just a great feeling that, uh, a feeling of peace. Uh, you sit down at the drums and drums are very mathematical, you know, and at the same time, uh, um, they require the coordination between four limbs um, you know, a, a high coordination. And um, when you do that and you get into sync and you get into a, a motion, um, it is just, it's just a great feeling. Your mind isn't attacked. You, you're, you're not worrying about anything. It takes you. And it doesn't matter whether it's jazz or country or rock or blues, whatever you're doing. Um, now, it's a whole different experience if you're uh, like a classical concert percussionist playing with an orchestra now that is a that is a, a precision attack kind of a performance meaning that you're not playing for a long time possibly and then the music tells you to come in with a cymbal crash or a snare drum pattern or this or that that's a that's a highly stressful situation can be you know and that's why you really want to be ready for it and do it but a drum set player who is sitting down in a drum set and playing a pattern, playing a rhythm, playing time, playing various fills around the drums, that's a, that's a stress reliever. As you, you just get in the groove and off, yeah. off you go. Yeah. Tremendous. All right, John. Well, this has been fun. Uh, yeah. Your website, johnbryantdrums.com, right? Right. There's some more stories and you've been on some other podcasts and things. People can go check you out there. Yeah, it's all there. That. Yeah, it'll be linked in the show notes below. John, thanks a bunch for hanging out with us. Thank you, John. I appreciate it very much. And I uh, look forward uh, to if any of your listeners have any questions or I can uh, be of any assistance, they can just send me a message through my website. Thanks so much for spending your time with the Destiny is Debatable podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe. It really does help us grow and reach new people. For more information, visit johnbgrimes.com. Destiny is Debatable is a Symblem production.